0: Go. What's going on guys, it's Fernandez. Welcome back to the Wipeout Podcast where every episode is all about movement and mindsets. And today guys, if you've ever worried about trying to make your training as optimal as possible, trying to optimize everything, or even started to get confused about all the different conflicting advice on the internet around how many sets and reps you should be doing, how many times you should be training per week, how what kind of split you should be running, and being really confused, that all these experts seem to have really different opinions on all this stuff. Then this is going to be a really helpful episode for you. And I'm going to start to talk about what optimal training really is, and kind of the harsh truth about optimal training. And to be honest, I'm making this episode because I spent a lot of time obsessing over trying to be optimal in my training, with everything from the actual exercise stuff to even my nutrition and my macros and calories, even my micronutrients, down to my different sleep phases and trying to get all of those dialed in as optimal as possible and i definitely learned a lot doing that but i also made a lot of mistakes and it also helped me back in a lot of different ways i want to share a couple of stories with you guys and a couple of different mindset shifts that you can make in your own training to help you not only kind of become more optimal but also to really really hone in on what's important and make sure that you keep getting the results that you want to see with your body both in terms of the strength and the skill development that you're looking to make in your movement practice Cool. So growing up, I watched a lot of fitness YouTube. Like I started training when I was 15. I was super, super skinny. And I was convinced that I had to put on as much muscle as fast as humanly possible. People wouldn't like me, it wouldn't take me seriously. And so I spent literally, I think over a thousand hours down different YouTube rabbit holes and internet bodybuilding fitness forums and I was trying to find out what exercises I should be doing, how to set up my training so that I could get the results that I thought that I wanted back then. And the most immediate thing I found was that there were so many people that seemed to be in, in amazing shape and had all these different accolades and had all these different degrees and had spoken at all these workshops and they were real authority figures but they all seemed to disagree on well, they all couldn't seem to agree on basically what I think should have been the most fundamental stuff, about how many sets and reps should I be doing if I want to build muscle, or how many times a week should I be training if I want to get stronger, and what kinds of exercises should I be doing for my body. And it was all this different conflicting advice, and all of the kind of thumbnails and the titles, they were all set up to be like, this one exercise that you have to be doing, or the best training split, what is it? And all these were clickbaity titles, and you know, I, part of me knew that they were clickbait at the time, but what it resulted in was me kind of developing this really warped picture that was seen through the lens of all of this online fitness content. And it led to me developing heaps of fear around getting it wrong. I was all, I didn't wanna be a sucker. I didn't wanna be an idiot that it was gonna click on that thumbnail and be like, oh my God, I've actually been doing this exercise wrong all along. I, why haven't I been doing this one key exercise that holds the keys to all of my gains? Because I was so emotionally invested in this, it genuinely created a lot of fear and a lot of yeah, just angst and unnecessary suffering and frustration around what should have ultimately been an enjoyable physical endeavor. And not only that, it didn't actually translate to me getting any results either. The more I spent, the more time I spent down this rabbit hole, of trying to optimize everything about my training. Man, I've learned a lot of theory and that was great. And that served me really, really well later on when I wanted to go and become a coach. But in the trenches at the time, it kind of led to me picking up and starting to do a bunch of different exercises and then realizing that I was missing some other exercise for my lateral delt, the upper portion. And so I had to add in this extra isolation exercise. And then I found out I was an idiot for not adding in another different exercise or another training split. So I was constantly picking up and putting down these approaches and kind of going in circles. And if you know anything about training, then you'd probably know that I wasn't getting very good results then. What I wish someone had kind of (laughs) given me a bit of a slap and a a wake up call and, and sat me down and told me about this optimal training and this optimizing thing that I was trying to do was this, that optimal is a moving target. And today in this episode, I want to talk to you about one, why that's true and some underlying theory and some stories about why that's true. And then I want to talk to you about generally how the schools of thought work and how people try and approach this issue of optimal as a moving target. And then finally, I want to give you what is my current understanding of how to come at this issue and what's really important to focus on around that if you're just serious about getting some long-term results in your strength and skill training so first of all i want to kick off by talking about why is why is it true how do we know that optimal is a moving target and what does that even mean and so to understand why this can probably apply to your situation i want to tell you a story about a chat i was having with a buddy of mine recently and he's been training really really consistently he's a super super dedicated dude he's showing up in the gym he's working really hard four to five times a week he's doing extra mobility stuff outside that and he's really dedicated and he's really serious and he's been making some really really good gains with the program that he's been running now what happened was that he started to get real a lot of hectic stuff started to go on in his life some work stresses started to pile on he had to pick up some more hours and he also had to be uni assessments due and all of his stress started to pile on and what happened was that he started to feel like he wasn't sleeping as well he couldn't really show up and have the same juice in the gym and then he started to get some tweaks and yeah just started to kind of body started to fall in a heap a little bit and he was really frustrated and he felt like he'd done something wrong and when i told him that is no man you haven't done anything wrong at all and what you're experiencing right now is this kind of optimal as a moving target phenomenon what you were doing up until this point was really good for you and it was basically if you're making progress you're older. there's only so far Fast, extra, you're going to make progress. You can definitely make progress more slowly. But if you're making significant progress, you're fucking good. I talked about this in my recent podcast with Bren, Bren Vizzarolo as well. He, taught, he calls it the golden rule of progress. And so anyway, so my mate was making really good progress. But then what happened is all of these different lifestyle factors change. And that changed the, the landscape. That changed the setting of his body that was responding to the training and that's why, he stopped. that's why he fell off and stopped getting those results. So to understand why this is happening, we've got to look at what exercise is. And exercise is just stress, all right? And exercise works via this mechanism that we call hormesis. Just basically the idea that you do a little bit of something that is damaging. And too much would be very damaging, but if you just do a little bit, your body is going to respond and build back and get stronger and more resilient, more robust in some kind of way. Now, you've probably heard this about exercise before. You know, what doesn't kill you makes you stronger. You break down the muscle tissue during training and it builds back stronger during recovery. Pretty basic stuff. But the key thing to understand here is that exercise is not the only form of stress in your life. And you may have also heard about stress as a really big factor when it comes to everything to do with health. But especially when it comes to exercise, all your lifestyle stresses and the stuff that happens at work and the stuff that happens in your relationships all of that stress gets added to the same bucket it's just the same body and your body doesn't obviously it's different systems and specific stresses but there's a certain amount of what's called systemic fatigue or just kind of overall stress that gets accumulated over time and the way that we deal with those things is via recovery you Now, a massive one is when we sleep and a lot of the processes that go on to help our body respond in that kind of way that we rebuild back stronger from exercise that same thing happens from lifestyle stresses and your body is constantly maintaining and constantly trying to repair from the damages and from the stresses and adapt to the stresses in this environment so to skip the science lesson the goal is for you to find the right amount of stress that's going to in the form of exercise that's going to give you significant results in the forms that you're looking for without strength muscle flexibility but not so much that you can't recover from it so this goldilocks zone in the middle it's a relatively large kind of variance depending on the person depending on what's going on for them you're trying to find something that's in the middle and the most the fastest you will progress in those results within that scope is what we would consider optimal training but here's the problem one your ability level is constantly changing depending on how much you train and how good your training is that is constantly going to be moving and the amount that is going to be significant for you is changing over time as you build your work capacity, as you get stronger. And this is why progressive overload is so important. So that's one moving target for what is optimal. And the second one is that we cannot in any way account for the lifestyle stresses that happen in your life. There is absolutely no, maybe in the future, once we get to some crazy AI tech that's plugged into every facet of our body, we can start to get a better idea of exactly how all the different lifestyle stresses and variants in our life affect that big pool of recovery. But to think that we can get really mathematically accurate with how much we should kind of adjust our training according to how those lifestyle stresses change, it's just a complete myth. Optimal is a moving target, like we said. And so because of that, there is no right amount of sets and reps. There is no right amount of days per week because what that Goldilocks zone is for a particular individual is going to vary so much depending on their current level of conditioning and their training history, how old they are, factors even like their gender, as well as not even to mention all of the different lifestyle factors that happen to be happening to them at that given time. So you can see that there's really just a lot of clickbait and marketing when it comes down to people thinking that they can tell you off the bat what the right amount of sets and reps is. And when you do start to get down to the scientific backing of what that amount of sets and and reps is, it's really, it's a massive, massive spectrum. You know, you're talking like five to 30 sets a week for a particular body part, depending on the size of the body part. You know, there's just so many different factors. And so what can you do about this? You know, this is not meant to shock you or to scare you or to think that you can never get it right. We just wanna to start to understand the actual lay of the land and get some quality data on what what we actually do understand and what we actually do have control over and not end up making some sloppy decision-making based off some kind of pipe dream stuff that we think that we're always, you know, if we just find the perfect number of sets and reps, that we're just gonna get the results that we want because that doesn't really exist. Right, so all that you really can do is try and deal with this reality in some kind of way. And there are three general schools of thought when it comes to dealing with this reality of optimal as a moving target. And I'm going to break each one of them down for you, give you the pros and cons real quick so you can start to put together a picture in your mind of, yeah, what the benefits are, kind of start to understand the benefits of them while also understanding the limitations. And the first, yeah, general school of thought is what i like to call the Goggins approach and this is named after David Goggins he's a very famous dude you might have seen him heard of him read his book the ex-navy seal and special forces guy who is very famous for pushing through extreme feats and extreme levels of pain in order to achieve these crazy things with his body you know, running several ultramarathons, he's run 100 kilometers on broken ankles And so you kind of get the idea that basically the first strategy to deal with this is to completely ignore any deviations, any ups and downs, and just shut up and do it anyway. And there are quite a number of people who are very successful with this approach, you know, and they're often very loud and proud about it. You can hear a lot of people, you know, say stuff like conquer your inner bitch and... Shut up and do it anyway, and no matter how you feel, I was tired, I was beaten up, I had fucking blood coming out of my eyeballs, but you know what, I jumped up and I got out of bed at 3.20 in the morning and I went to the fucking gym anyway and I did 17,000 burpees and that's why I'm jacked. And this is a kind of narrative that gets pushed a lot, especially on social media, this is the kind of stuff to get shared around. And like I said, you know, I'm taking the piss out of it a little bit, but there are some pros to this kind of approach. Because at the end of the day, to get results and, you know, whether or not it's optimal training, to get results, you require significant volume of exercise at a significant intensity. And you need to be able to sustain that over time in order to be able to see results long term. Plus, obviously, your nutrition recovery. And the pros of this kind of Goggins approach is that these people are often very training with a lot of intensity with a lot of volume and that's going to be a very significant stimulus that's going to drive a lot of adaptation and the reality is that a lot of people can do much more than they think. So this approach works for some people but the cons of this whole Goggins approach are kind of obvious but it's really a very short-term mindset for 99.9% of people. You know, This approach is often victim to what's called the survivorship bias which is basically like the only ones that survive to tell the story are the ones that follow this approach and they get famous enough because they use this approach. But the reality is that this kind of approach breaks more people than it makes. Now, I remember, yeah, when I first heard about this David Goggins guy, I went out and tried to just run, I think it was only 8Ks, but I basically never run long distances since I was an early teenager and this was probably like my early 20s. And I said I was going to run out, run 8Ks and I wasn't going to stop no matter what. And my knees started to really, really hurt. Like not kind of, you know, push through the muscle pain. It was like a sharp stabbing joint pain. They started hurting around kilometer three or four. But I told myself I wasn't going to stop. And so I fucking pushed through anyway and I ran. And honestly, it was a really powerful thing for me to understand that I could push through that pain. But four or five k's later, I walked, kind of limped back up my staircase and sat down on the floor. And I couldn't straighten my legs and I couldn't move it all. And what actually ended up happening was that I had pretty bad knee pain and walking downstairs and going on even distance walks at a pretty low intensity. For about two to three years after that, I did some really significant damage to myself. So the idea that you can just shut up and push through absolutely everything is a kind of almost a rejection of what is human. Um, and And the reality is that especially the people that are going to be listening to these kinds of people, Not the people that have the best work capacities in the world, people who are regular gym goers who want to get in better shape. The reality is that they have a very real ceiling for how much they can recover from. I'm still very much in that camp as well. And what happens after you cross that other side is you start to enter the territory of not just plateauing and spending a lot of time for not very many results because you're training beyond what you can recover from, but also just injury. Uh, And sometimes those injuries take you out of the game so long that it undoes most if not all of the gains that you made with that approach in the first place. So that's the Gorgons approach. And Moving on from that, the next one is what I call the autoregulator. And the basic, basic creed of this kind of philosophy is to listen to your body. Now, autoregulation is the kind of technical name for basically responding to the different signals the subjective feelings in the body and adapting your training approach accordingly. So an auto regulator might kind of wake up one morning and they've got a chest uh, workout scheduled for that day and their chest is still sore from the last workout. And they might say, hey, I'm listening to the sign of my body, I'm not sufficiently recovered, I'm not gonna go and do this training, I'm going to adjust my approach based off the feedback from my body. And there is many, many pros to this approach as well. Because it is a little bit more realistic. There's some kind of you know relationship with your body that's not just beating itself over the head with a whi- you know, over the back with a whip. It's starting to say, okay, what does my body need in order to get into that Godblock zone? Do I need more rest and recovery, or do I need to put the pedal to the metal? And this is starting to get into some territory that can, yeah, really get you to be more reactive to these lifestyle changes and to start to follow that moving target of where is optimal for you a little bit better. People that do this often get less burnout and injured less often. But the flip side is kind of the opposite of opposite problem of what the Goggins approach has, and it's that auto regulation can slip is a bit of a slippery slope, and it can go too far too easily. I wouldn't necessarily say it's a slippery approach, but it definitely can go too far very easily, because often the signals that we're getting from our body it takes some skill to interpret those and. Honestly, often the the signals that our body is sending to us can't be taken at face value. This actually happened to me this morning. I went to get up, my alarm went off this morning and I went to get up and get out of bed to go to the gym and I had an upper body session scheduled and my body was really sore. And I was lying in bed, I was like, oh shit, I think I'm not ready. And I just got out of bed and I was like, let me just go take a shower and just kind of go to the gym and I'll just see how I feel when I get there. I don't have to smash myself. And by the time I warmed up, I was feeling great and I actually had a great session. So it's very easy to start to overreact to the signals in your body and overcompensate. And this often ends up in people doing less volume than they need to, training less often and becoming even a little bit neurotic about how they should try and go back and forward and listen to the signals. And maybe I should, you know, stopping shy at the first sign of any kind of discomforts And that's gonna go too far the other way into not enough significant stimulus for you to actually find the kind of adaptation that you want. And I've also had plenty of experience doing this as well, Um, especially in my really heavy kind of optimizing kind of days. I really, really went too far with the kind of auto-regulation approach. So there's pros and cons there as well. And the final one I wanna talk about is what I call the biohacker. And the biohacker uses measurement tools and processes to kind of get data on where they're at. That might be via tracking their fitness in a spreadsheet. They're tracking their workout in a spreadsheet. That might be through wearable tech, whether that's one of those chests or Apple watches. that track their heart rate variability, their heart rate, and gives them, spits out a readiness score. Might be macro tracking and nutrition tracking. We got there eventually any kind of things that you're using some kind of external tool or prop to measure some kind of internal process in the body so that you can better react and adjust your training to try and get better results and now there are again clear pros with this one as well because data gives you the ability to make informed decisions based on more than just your feelings like we said the feelings can't always be trusted and taken at face value so especially when you start to get into the, you know, especially some of the newer tech that focuses more on looking at heart rate variability trends and trying to establish, well, how ready is your body to take on stress based on your heart rate variability, which there's good data to suggest that drastic changes or at least significant changes in your average heart rate variability or significant fluctuations between different heart rate variability scores. So let's say, yeah, you know 113 milliseconds one day and then 110 the next day and then 112 the next day and then you know don't take those numbers as as, uh, as gospel but that's not much variability between your hrv scores but if one day you're at 57 and the next one you're at 118 and next one you're at even 140 and then back to 90 even though some of those scores are quite high the variability would suggest based on the literature that your body is under more stress than normal and might need some more significant recovery and so these wearable wearable tech takes all of this into account and spits out this readiness score for you and like i said there's really there's a lot of benefits to using some of these as extra data and extra props to help you make decisions so that when your body does need more of that recovery you're not going and punishing that you know death march crossfit workout that might actually be doing you more harm than good when you need more recovery But the cons, and the cons are really, I think, of the sign of the times. And eventually we might get to the point where we have far better, far more accurate technology. But the reality is that these kinds of wearable tech and these kinds of methods, they're crude tools and they're really in their infancy. And you've really got to be careful about the kind of quality of decision that you make based on the quality of the data that's coming in. So you might say that, oh, I'm at a 90 readiness score. So I'm gonna go train really hard today. And I'm actually at a, 57 reading in the score the next day. So I'm not going to train really hard that day. Well, that's not based on perfect signals. And just because there's a successful company that's selling you a thing that has a product that's telling you something is pretty obvious to say that that's not necessarily a perfect representation of what's actually happening inside your body. And like I said, I went through a very, very big optimizing phase. I had two different sleep trackers. One was more of a fitness tracker. The other one was much more of a high level Uh, sleep tracker. The sleep tracker was the Aura and the other one was the Whoop. They both track sleep and activity, but the Whoop is far more suited to activity and Aura is far more suited to sleep. But yeah, I went really down, down the rabbit hole about tracking and getting data. And what I found is that these tools are useful as tools, but they make poor masters. And what I mean by that is that I started to become far too overreactive to the numbers that I was being provided even the color on the bar if uh, I know on the aura it gives you a different color gra- actually on both of them it gives you a different color grading like yellow for kind of recovered red for under recovered green for you're in, the gr- you're in the clear you can go train hard and if I sleep score kind of showed up even on a couple of the things as yellow and there was too much yellow that kind of sent some signals to my body to my subconscious that oh you're not ready put on the brakes and I became too reliant on this as a crutch and it's really easy to do this and it doesn't happen overnight and it kind of takes a bit of a while before you realize that this has happened, at least in my experience, but this became too much data, too much information to the point that it started to reinforce some negative patterns and because I'd start to believe that maybe I wasn't recovered, that would actually affect my ability to show up and work out because of my belief, because of that kind of placebo effect that it's having. So you've got to be really careful with this. While there's significant pros, there's also significant cons. And this brings me to the real way that I think that we can train optimally, and it's to combine some of all of these three. So what we can learn from the Goggin side of things is just to have a plan and and to try your best to stick to it. You know, it's really consistency over the long term that's going to provide you with the kind of results that you desire when you want to build muscle, get stronger, achieve core strength skills. None of this happens overnight. Especially when you add the skill element to it. If you're keen to train for muscle-ups, levers, like your front lever and your back lever, your human flag, handstand work, a lot of these are really complex processes that you can't just muscle your way through. They take specific coordination and skill. Press the handstand is another great example, handstand push-up's another great example. These things take a lot of time and you need to show up consistently. And you can't always listen to yourself and stay in bed when it's a bit cold out. So, the Going approach, we, that's what we can learn from there. What we can learn from the auto regulators is to learn the skill of listening to your body. And listening to your body is a skill. It takes some practice to start to weed out what is noise and what is signal. It takes some practice to determine whether or not that's just your body wanting a little bit of extra comfort and you're actually just sleeping in a really comfy bed and there's a little bit of sleep inertia versus no, I, this is a clear sign that I need more recovery and that's not an easy thing to determine so it does take a little bit of skill but with some practice and developing that awareness a little bit better you can start to adjust your approach based on how you feel and doing that is definitely going to help you avoid some of those injuries and what we can learn from the biohacking approach is at the very minimum track your training the number of reps and sets you do is obviously based on many different things but you're tracking the output you're not necessarily trying to guess how much is gonna happen or how much you should do, if you do have a consistent plan, you have clear data on what you're actually showing up and what you're getting done in the gym. And if you can do that, and if you can see trends over time of maybe it's getting harder and harder to sustain the same amount of work. And you can look at your life and say, "Well, oh, fuck, actually I haven't been sleeping very much, or you know, work's getting pretty stressful right now, maybe this is a sign that I need to take a step back, maybe take a little deload, and react in some way like that. And that's based off data, not just how you feel, or not just pushing through no matter what. So you can kind of combine all, of these, all of these three different approaches into a responsive system that takes into account not only the fact that optimal is a moving target, but also that to find that moving target is very difficult. And this kind of brings me to my last point that I want to close with, which is just to kind of fucking relax a little bit. You know, if I could have taken that younger version of me that wanted to get things right so badly, I would have just told him, man, like chill out. You're in this for the long game. If you truly desire to make the kind of results to, to achieve those significant goals, to make significant changes in your body, then you have to be in it for a long game. And that it's a learning process and you're going to have to make mistakes. And I think the most powerful thing that you can do is to make those mistakes less significant. So just to relax a little bit, to understand that you're not optimal 100% of the time, you're just going to learn and build on that. You're going to build that ability to listen to your body. You're gonna build that kind of awareness of when it's time to put the pedal to the metal a little bit more, when you maybe should kind of push through some things and when it's time to take a reactive deload. You know, when there's, you're listening to the slight niggles that you're getting in your elbow and your wrist before they become really, really pronounced problems. But you also know how to continue to train around those injuries. There's so much experience that comes with just sticking to things long-term and the really, really harsh truth about that optimal training is that it's so hard to dial in, it's so hard to arrive at what is truly optimal that you're far better off just focusing on your inputs, taking a little bit of time to track some data, track your progress and follow a program, react to how your body is feeling on the day and at least take on that data, but just to stick to your approach anyway and not to worry too much about being super, super optimal at all times it's generally the way I see it being discussed most of the time in the internet kind of forum space is far too bogged down in minute details that don't actually move the needle very much on how your body responds to training when compared to am I showing up consistently? Am I doing significant training volume? Am I training hard enough to produce a signal that my body needs to adapt in this specific way? Am I just focusing on trying to get good sleep and trying to put good quality whole foods in my body eat adequate protein it really does come back to these basics and as soon as you get lost in that rabbit hole of what is optimal you can really distract yourself from just having a far easier time focusing on the big rocks getting and getting even more progress as a result of not getting caught up in things that don't matter nearly as much so guys i hope that you've enjoyed this episode and i hope you've got something out of it and i hope that you know, you might have seen yourself in one of those three camps. And I really hope that you can take this information away and just upskill yourself a little bit more, make some adjustments to how you approach this, but also allow yourself to give yourself permission to make mistakes. And really stick out for the long haul. And if you've got questions, guys, you can always hit me up on Instagram at Fernandez underscore White Belt. That's W-H-Y-T-B-E-L-T. You can check me out at whitebelt.com. And there are plenty more podcasts, both solo and interviews with some of the best coaches and minds in movement and mindsets from around the world coming up in the coming weeks. So stay tuned for that. I hope you enjoyed the episode and much love. Cut.